Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravella, and I'm the co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, uh, one of the incredibly significant issues on the American Shoreline uh, that we can't help but cover in Coastal News Today and on the American Shoreline Podcast Network all the time is the conflict between private property, the protection of upland private property, the risks of increasing sea level rise, and the public rights to access and aesthetic values along the shoreline. Uh, The coast of America is a crucible for the conflict between public interest and private interest. And we've got a great show today to explore that. And I think one of the best excerpts we've come across. That's right. I mean, goodness, it's it's probably issue number one, uh, erosion and how to manage it there. And for this show, we're going up to the Pacific Northwest, Peter, your old stomping grounds in Oregon, the beautiful Oregon coast, where we will be discussing uh, Goal 18 and an economic, an applied economic analysis of what would happen if uh, these rules that really restrict uh, building of armoring were to be relaxed or or done away with here as, as sea level rise increases, climate change occurs, these pressures are increasing. And that's what we're looking at here, and we're going to study it on the show. It's really a great idea for the show. Uh, and I want to say our guest is a, an expert on the topic. Dr. Steve Dundas is an assistant professor of applied economics at Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon, one of our favorite universities on the coast. Go Beeves. Um, he is a fellow at the Marine Sciences Initiative uh, and University Marine Studies uh, study think tank. He is a faculty member at the Hatfield Marine Sciences Center in Newport, Oregon, uh, and uh, has been examining uh, the really the economics and incentives and what drives armoring decisions on the Oregon coast. And it's going to be a fascinating decision uh, that the state is uh, uh, facing over uh, Goal 18, as you said, a state policy that restricts shoreline armoring in Oregon. So we're going to be talking about that. So if your wonk, if your wonk meter is going off, <laughs> get excited because this is going to be a good one for you. Uh, but first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, I thought, Steve, we'd like to... uh uh, help our audience understand who they're listening to. And we'd like to get a little bit more of a sense of, of your background uh, professionally and academically. Uh, could you introduce our audience? Tell us where you're from, where you've studied, and, uh, and how you ended up at Oregon State University. Sure thing. I grew up near the ocean in New Jersey. So I would say my passion for coastlines, beaches, and oceans started pretty early. I went to the University of Delaware and studied natural resource management as an undergrad. 
And then I worked as an environmental scientist and a professional photographer for about seven years before I decided to return to grad school. At that point, I went back to the University of Delaware and studied agricultural and resource economics. And it wasn't until I moved to North Carolina State University for my PhD in economics where I started thinking that, hey, this training that I'm getting in environmental economics, uh, I really need to begin to apply it to coastal settings and coastal ecosystems and things that I care about. At that point, uh, I started my dissertation and doing work on beach nourishment in New Jersey and coastal recreation in North Carolina. And one thing led to another. And as I was going on the job market, Oregon State University was looking for a coastal and marine economist looking at coastal ecosystems and recreation. So it was a perfect fit for uh, my interests. So I arrived at Oregon State University in 2015. And my research now focuses on coastal ecosystems, the provision of coastal ecosystem services, things that we value and we get from coastal ecosystems, and, and how people make decisions about coastal management now and into the future. Most of my work now focuses on climate change adaptation and thinking about how to make our coastlines more resilient to sea level rise and the looming climate disaster. Steve, uh, help me understand what uh, the the field of applied economics brings to the discussion when it comes to understanding the American shoreline broadly. You know, we often think about the physics, we think about the social science uh, broadly. You know, these are broad terms that, that we throw around all the time on this show. Uh, what does applied economics help us understand? Well, our shorelines are, are what scientists and funding agencies called our coupled human natural systems. So there's direct interaction between the physics of shoreline change and human development decisions and human recreation decisions. So, and we have a lot more influence on the environment than sometimes we like to think. So for, for the ability of shorelines to evolve with climate change and sea level rise, typically they would need room to go somewhere and, and evolve with the changing ocean conditions. But given that we've made the choice to develop and live on our coastlines from the, for the various benefits that we derive from it. It's important to understand how people are making decisions about where they choose to live, the type of uh, development that we have on our shoreline uh, feeds back to that natural system. So understanding how people are making decisions about that and how they respond to different coastal policies is really important to understand how we move forward. Yeah, just I absolutely love the uh, intersection of issues that you just described, and it is the what is what, you know, money talks, money matters in terms of how people behave in every setting, but particularly and especially uh, when it comes to coastal property and coastal adaptation. Uh, but the intersection of of incentives, market incentives, with what are the public policy frameworks in which. Uh, uh, individuals act on the on the shoreline and what the implications of that intersection is is really interesting and I think the focus of the work that you have been doing and uh, Steve what brought us to you uh, uh, today was a paper that was published in the Journal of Environmental Economics and Management that came out this month and uh, it's called a, it's called I believe hold the line modeling private coastal adaptation through shoreline armoring decisions a paper that you can uh, completed with uh, uh, dr. Jason Beasley uh, it's an outstanding bit of work uh, and part of a series of uh, studies that you have conducted um, 
at the Applied Economics Department at Oregon State University. Can you introduce us to the paper and the subject matter of your research a little bit more? So this paper focuses on oceanfront landowner decisions under Oregon's State Planning Goal 18, which has a clear definition of who can and cannot armor private property along the Oregon coast. Uh, this work was funded by NOAA's National Centers for Coastal Ocean Science under a grant that I was leading looking at both green and gray infrastructure choices for improving coastal protection. Uh, Dr. Jason Beasley was my first PhD student. He, he's now an assistant professor at Western Michigan University and the lead author on the paper. So he took the lead looking at, we had all this great data about who's armored and when and when those choices were made. And we looked at what influences those choices. And the common thing that you would think would influence those choices, you know, elevation, erosion rates, things of that nature uh, are obvious drivers of that decision. But we also wanted to look into the effect of neighbor's decision or the peer effects associated with these decisions. If someone sees someone neighboring in their neighborhood, do they learn about risks more so than they had before? Do they learn about the aesthetic changes of the coastline? Do they learn about costs? So are they learning something about uh, that option that they might have by observing their neighbor doing it? Or are they worried about, hey, if my neighbor does this, the wave action is now going to deflect onto my property and make the erosion problem worse. So we've, we've started to think, hey, maybe this interaction between neighbors and the spatial component of this decision could be just as important as you know an, an increase in erosion or sea level rise. So we wanted to formulate a model that would kind of get into the heads of these decision makers and, and try to figure out a way to quantify the different drivers that would be influencing these armoring decisions for uh, parcels that had the option to do so. Yeah, I'd like to understand more about the context here. So I understand that uh, goal 18 is a part of, uh, is it the 68 beach bill? Is that right? Well, this is part of the state land use code. Okay. Uh, and yeah. But this goes back to my understanding is that there's a 60, 67 beach bill. The 67 beach bill. And I'm just curious. So like now we're talking about the 67 long time ago, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. What what's uh, for in, in 67 goal 18 is established well, or no, somewhere that's, around there? That's later. I think the beach build is what guaranteed the public's right of access to the coast, to the aesthetics and, and okay. access to the shoreline. So it's right. sort of similar to it's like an open beaches act or correct. the coastal act, stuff like that. OK, but eventually we yes. get goal 18 yeah. and it's what in the 70s? Yeah, Steve, when, when tell us about goal 18, what it is and and. What the, the origin of it? Yeah, in the context of that of that law. Well, the 1967 Beach Bill is kind of a holy grail for all of Oregonians in the sense that it provides a permanent recreation easement, meaning that our beaches are always public and you always have access to the beach. So Oregonians feel that this is their their right to have permanent access to the ocean. It's it's a great thing and fairly unique in the United States. Moving into the 70s. Oregon established a set of land use planning goals to kind of control development and uh, prevent urban sprawl and prevent uh, overuse of resources like coastal beaches and dunes. So goal 18 was the one focused on coastal beaches and dunes. Uh, there was concern that uh, development was running rampant on the coastline. There was concern that with erosion problems, people were just going to install hardened structures or riprap revetments to uh, fix the shoreline in place to protect coastal property. So what goal 18 did said, we don't, the legislature said, we want to stem this tide of armoring that's been occurring. 
and we are we are going to prohibit armoring from occurring in the future. So goal 18 is essentially a prohibition on armoring. But because of concern about takings under the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, they grandfathered in any property that existed prior to January 1st, 1977. So any property that had a home or any lot that was on its way to being developed. So in order to absolve themselves of being seen as taking a right away from a property owner, those 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 parcels were, were given this really important right. They were given the option to armor in, into the future. So what that has done is basically half the parcels on the, on the Oregon coast have this option to armor. So they've either armored already or they there's thousands of parcels that still have this option that haven't armored to date. And then there's another set of parcels that simply cannot do it. And so all the homes that have been built since January 1st, 1977 do not have this option to armor their property if erosion uh, becomes a problem. And furthermore, it, it becomes a little bit more difficult to armor. It's not that even with the eligibility, can you just armor if you want to? The state has a very specific permitting process and a geologist has to deem your property at imminent risk of damage from erosion before you're even allowed to think about installing a riprap revetment. So in essence, it's a goal 18 is a prohibition on armoring, however, with the exception for homes that were established before the rule came into play. Interesting. And bringing this into the present, since the 77 line of demarcation, you say now that we have 50% that are eligible or currently have armoring implemented and 50% that do not. And uh, what is the current state of play? It seems as though those 50% on the outside looking in, so to speak, are trying to change this rule? Yes, there are a number of areas of the Oregon coast that are experiencing severe erosion, especially during when, this time of year with we have a king tide coming up next week and storms expected to roll in. So there's a lot of concern in certain areas of the coast that you know beaches have disappeared rapidly over the last decade. And because of the way that this planning goal came to be, I think the term that the state officials use is a sawtooth pattern. So there are there are homes that have this eligibility next to homes that don't. And there are areas that are experiencing severe erosion that the, the homeowners who do not have this option view it as a injustice that their neighbors can do it, but they can't because of some rule that was created uh, nearly 40 years ago. Well, um, you know, from a public policy standpoint, I think, and I'm glad we're spending some time on explaining to our listeners around the country what this land use goal is, goal 18. And this grandfather provision uh, allowing armoring for homes that existed essentially at January 1st, 1977 and after. So we end up with two worlds here. I mean, you know, when you think right about, next to each other. Right. You think about the what is what are the rules that govern the Oregon coast? Well, it depends entirely. You can be in category A and have a right to armor and in category B and have none. And you can be adjacent facing the same risks. I've got to think from a public policy tension standpoint, Tyler, that is going to create some energy on the Oregon coast. Well, and the other thing that I think is that I, I know that this paper goes into, but I'm intuitive just on this discussion is if I uh, had to drop in as an owner on one of one or the other, leaving the morality and the the uh, maybe environmental impacts aside, I would rather own, of course, the property where I have the option to do it. Right. That's worth a lot to me. I mean, I think in the paper it said 8%. 
Yeah, Steve. We, I that think, seems low. I would. I would want. You know, I, given the trend. I tell would. us about the economic implications of having the right to armor or not armor, and what your analysis showed in terms of the real world economic implications of that policy. So there's a. This paper was focused on the landowner decision making, but I do have a complementary paper with a colleague, Dave Lewis at Oregon State, that was published last year that looked at the capitalization effect or how much people would be willing to pay for having that option versus not. So this is a hedonic analysis or a housing market analysis where the idea is to control for all the things that people like about houses, all the amenities that come with houses, bedrooms, bathrooms, and all the environmental amenities and compare houses that are similar in all dimensions, hopefully except this option. When we were able to focus in on the option for having goal 18 eligibility, we actually found that the effect was zero uh, for the average parcel in our sample. But then we said that that can't be right, that this has to be impacting the housing market in some way. And then we realized our average parcel was 35 feet above sea level and on an accreting shoreline in Oregon. So we have a lot of variation in erosion and versus accretion uh, along the shoreline. When we focused on low elevation eroding shorelines, we found that a similar homes, one with the option and one without, the one with the option would sell for 22% more than the one without. Wow. And the 8% number I think that you found was a, a discount for having for an ineligible parcel that was nearby a parcel that was eligible. So there was worry there of some spillover effects. Hey, if they armor, all that wave action is going to dump on me and I have no ability to protect my property. Somewhere between zero and 22. Yeah, dependent on the risk that the parcels face. But right. the, the 8% was the for the ineligible parcels for being near a eligible parcel. So that's a result of that kind of sawtooth pattern of the two worlds that you guys noted a second ago. Wow. Well, this is what applied economics is really about, is to break down these uh, public policy uh, uh, pronouncements, uh, goal 18, what does it mean, this grandfather provision, and analyze how does that affect the market and the behavior of people along the shore. This is why this is such a rich and important conversation, uh, I think, for everybody around the country. This is not... The, the dynamics in Oregon, of course, are unique, but the issue is absolutely universal on the American shoreline and states approach it in a number of different ways. So in the context that we're talking about of the research, and we're going to get to the research, but we, we've mentioned a couple of things. One, the 1967 Beach Bill, which guarantees the public easement and right of access to the shoreline. That's the public interest in the public rights along the shoreline. Goal 18, which creates this two universe worlds of armoring uh, rights along the Oregon shoreline. That's an important thing. And the third element of the context, Steve, that I want to mention and have you talk about is uh, is let's talk about beach nourishment and the states, uh, whether or not Oregon has a, a program. Uh, you, uh, of course, coming from New Jersey, being in North Carolina, we're in Texas. We're all familiar with efforts to use beach nourishment, dune restoration, and enhancement as a response to increasing risk of sea level rise, shoreline change, and erosion. But I was interested to read in the paper that there has never been a beach nourishment project in the state of Oregon and that there doesn't exist a program. Can you educate our audience about beach nourishment and or other public initiated responses to shoreline change and erosion risk. Yes, Oregon is unique in the sense that they they lack a, a public uh, 
response to erosion and shoreline change. Uh, goal 18, as far as I can tell, to the best of my abilities of looking at this for the last five years, goal 18 remains the the pass through for anyone that wants to alter the shoreline. And it's it falls on private property owners to work through goal 18 to either armor or to grade their dunes or plant dune grasses or, or change the coast in any way. Beach nourishment is common around the country. Here on the West Coast, it's happened in California. It's happened a little bit in Washington. Uh, in Oregon, the only recorded uh, assessment that I could find of, of adding sand to the beach was when they're dredging the Columbia River. So it wasn't done for nourishment purposes. It was just done for somewhere to put the sand. And I think it stems from the fact that the sediment supply, where the sand would come from, is more challenging in Oregon. The wave climate is much more challenging and dynamic. And the state does not have a particular funding me mechanism like other states do to support federal projects. Uh, typically, it's a cost-sharing arrangement between the federal government, the state government, and local authorities. And that apparatus is, is not set up in Oregon. So pro private property owners are left to kind of figure out how to adapt to changing shorelines in the state. Interesting. And I think there's one other important element of context here before we dive into the, the research, and that is uh, sea level rise and climate change. And could you talk a little bit about the the trends uh, in terms of wave energies on the coast, uh, the sea level rise projections and how that uh, is impacting perhaps you know, a, a community, a given community's um, thought on armoring, perhaps, or taking some sort of uh, action to, to to reduce risk. I can speak in generalities. I'm I'm not an expert on the the wave dynamics or the the geomorphology or sediment transport or wave action. I do have colleagues that that work on that that I get my information from to inform my models. Um, in Oregon, we've been. My understanding is that it's been relatively spared so far for sea level rise due to a variety of factors, but it's beginning to increase. Uh, the state has a King Tides photo project that's going on as we speak. Uh, we have a King Tide coming in next week, and the idea is to take pictures of King Tides in estuaries and along the coast, so we have an understanding of what high tides will look like with sea level rise in the future. Um, in, in this paper, we, we did use moderate projections of sea level rise from NOAA inform how shorelines might move uh, in terms of influencing the decisions of parcels that are eligible for armoring in the future. So I'm not the right person to talk to if you, if you want to get into a wave climate. No, no, no. And, and this El Nino effect too. In Oregon, but, um, but people are starting to recognize it. it. It's probably less salient here than in other places on the East Coast where it's much more obvious that sea level rise is happening now you know, due to wave climate the elevation of the shoreline and just of various factors related to geology and geography. But I do think it's starting to become more of a, a salient idea in, in the minds of coastal planners and coastal landowners here in Oregon. Well, I think that the reason that Tyler and I are interested in that, that kind of general sense of direction here is it seems to be, and I think is, and I'm asking if this is a fair conclusion, that the pressure to armor or the interest in armoring uh, along the Oregon coast to protect upland property, developed property, is not going down and is likely to be going up. Is that a fair conclusion? I think that's a fair conclusion. I think the, the biggest driver 
physical driver that we see uh, in the data to date is that it's it's more about high water winters related to El Nino events right. that that have a the effect of a huge spike in armoring, but the general trend is climbing upwards. And as more people armor, our, our model suggests that as more people armor, that's just going to create a cascading effect as neighbors learn from one another and and people begin to uh, armor more in places. So places that already have armoring are there's likely to be a domino effect where it's going to continue rapidly into the future. And then once the next El Nino hit or the next big storm event hits and someone decides to armor in a place that hasn't seen a lot of armoring, that'll create a cascading effect where we will end up with much more armoring in the future. And I think that's the fundamental conclusion of the paper uh, that you've completed with Dr. Beasley is that the the effect of decision making of a neighbor is a is it can really drive the decision for others to armor. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to me that that conclusion uh, was borne out in the analysis and the technical detail uh, that you guys uh, undertook. Uh, Oregon is a self-help state. If you want to protect your property, it's really up to you. We've talked about the fact that there's two universes of people who have access to that self-help. I've got to think there's a tension here. And I wanted to ask you uh, uh, about about the recent lawsuit that's been going on in the state, I understand, in Rockaway, uh, where a permit for an armored solution, uh, a landowner was denied and has since sued. I, this was a footnote, so if, I, I apologize if I'm dragging this out of the depths of your paper. But can you inform our listeners a little bit about that litigation? Yes, that particular house was the reason that I was alerted to Goal 18 and this issue when I first moved to Oregon in 2015. Oh, this is a seminal, uh, a seminal piece here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you a stumbled lot, on a lot it of in the footnote. Put on one property, but <laughs> the, the the it's it's complicated. So this property was developed prior to 1977. However, Oregon's state land use planning goals are just a framework, and municipalities and towns are allowed to take a stronger stance. So they can't relax anything past those guidance, but they can put a stronger language into a goal. And this particular property, uh, the house was a new house was built on this property. So the property was grandfathered, a new house was built. As far as I understand it, it was built too close to the shoreline or too close to the vegetation line and violated the city's um, setback rules, Okay, which which negated its eligibility ah. under, under the state planning goal. So the permit was denied for that reason. The land, the homeowner sued and was denied the permit. Uh, and then mo- more recently, the house began to foundation began to be undermined and they sued again and were granted an emergency permit to allow them to put up a temporary structure. And they actually won a judgment against the town to pay for damages. Did they really? So that yes. case has now been resolved. The landowner prevailed, uh, not only has the right and I guess exercised the right to armor, uh, but was also given a check for the inconvenience. I wouldn't say it's resolved. I don't think the check has been paid. The temporary permit does not mean that they have a permanent permit yet. So it's it's still ongoing, but it, it was just a fascinating um, issue that got me interested in this. And there was a quote from a neighbor that is seminal in, in us forming our hypothesis for this paper. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it was something along the lines of, hey, if you let them armor, then I'm going to be 
at the state asking to armor soon because I'm worried about this cascading effect uh, and the wave action is just going to spill over onto my property and I'm going to have to do this. So don't let them do it because then I'm going to have to do it. And so that raised our our eyebrows and said, well, okay, wh wow, maybe we should be looking more about the dynamics of neighboring decisions and the spatial element of this problem rather than just what are the physical forcings that drive people to armor. So it's, it's interesting you bring up that house because that, that house, that one particular house was seminal in our thinking about developing this research question. Well, let's let's dive into the research paper and the analysis that you uh, presented in your paper in the Journal of Environmental Economics and Management. It's out here at that is out in January of 2021. Uh, what it can help our audience understand the hypothesis that you posed and analyzed in the paper. We wanted to understand what drives landowners who are eligible for armoring under goal 18 to choose to move forward with the process and install riprap revetments. So at the decisions were made at the parcel level, as you said, it's a self-help state. These are private coastal adaptation decisions. So we wanted to understand, okay, we, we knew, in our field, we know a little bit about municipal decision-making around beach nourishment, but at a, at a parcel level, what's, what are the things that are driving people to make these decisions? And as I just noted, our hypothesis was, of course, well, it's going to be elevation, it's going to be erosion, it's going to be El Nino events. But those things we kind of already intuitively know. But what else are significant in driving these decisions? And this led us to the idea that people learn from each other, or people might be worried about what we call in economics externalities. If someone chooses to make the decision to armor, is their decision going to therefore have a negative effect on me through deflected wave action? Are they going to make my erosion problem worse if if they armor their property so what we did was we took a kind of a what we call a discrete choice model so we we have 25 years of, of data so we observe every parcel in Tillamook and lincoln county in oregon which is where a majority of the armoring occurs every year from 1990 to 2015 and we observe whether they made the choice to armor or not and we look through all these we we generate a lot of data on shoreline change, on coastal risk, on the economic factors of the house. How much is the property worth? What's the, how much the value is in the structure? So we gathered lots of fine scale data on all of these parcels, trying to figure out what is it that's driving these, these decision processes. And, and what we did find was that all the things that you would intuitively think are driving that decision, like increased erosion rates, El Nino events, are definitely present and they definitely have an influence. Also things like the higher the value of the property, the more likely people are to armor. All those things are fairly intuitive. Uh, but what was interesting was the, these, these pure effects or these spillover effects. And the, the magnitude of these effects were much larger than we expected and were, were shown to be really significant drivers of, of these decisions. This is an aside, but I am just reminded of mask wearing and COVID or something like like the way like as soon as one person begins to I don't know maybe I should just delete this section but I'm just like no I think there's a parallel what is how does peer pressure or community yeah. response and the individual decisions that's yeah. a fair absolutely fair what's interesting to me about it Steve is that uh, that quote, that seminal quote that you that led to uh, this paper where, with with the neighbor who said, "Hey, look, if he does it, I'm gonna I'm gonna need to do this too." It's it's almost like the neighbor's reluctant. I mean, 
and we all understand, and we've covered it many times with our on our engineering programs, and uh, our ASPNU show with Dr. Megan Wenegrove's uh, class of engineering with nature students. Yeah, that armoring produces negative effects, amplified erosion effects, not only there where it is, but also particularly where it ends, and it's got to end somewhere. Yeah. So inevitably, when you start adding, when people start to make the decision to do it, what you're saying is you're at, I mean, this is what I'm thinking, forgive me, but you're, you're adding more ends, more end of more end armorings. Effects. Yeah. And then there's more end effects. There's more people who are going to be subjected to those. And how else do you protect yourself? I ask, I don't know. I mean, it would be one hell of a decision to not if there's no if there's no safeguard, if the state isn't going to be there to encourage other behavior, what else would you do? Yeah, that's I think that's correct. So we, we try to measure this effect in two ways: understanding that what you what you just described would be the kind of spillover effect or the the externality that hey, I'm gonna my problem is gonna be made worse by your decision, and we measured that by tracking neighboring decisions, direct neighbors, people that would make the decision to armor that we're in very close proximity to the parcel that in question. And the second effect, which we, we can't necessarily in this particular study disentangle this, the second effect was the count of the number of, of parcels that had armored in that period within a two kilometer buffer. So this would be a different effect than, than the one that you just mentioned. It would be, hey, I see someone down the beach on my walk who I don't think there's going to be a direct spillover effect. I don't think my erosion problem is going to be made worse because they armored, you know, a half mile away. But maybe I say, hey, well, we're facing the same risks. Maybe I should look into, maybe I should call a geologist and see if I'm at imminent risk. Or, hey, maybe I'll go talk to them and see how costly this this structure is. Uh, so there's some other learning effect. So it's in addition to this spillover effect, we also hypothesized there'd be this learning effect. And we did find evidence of, of both. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. I think the learning effect that you're talking, I can see it. You know, you're in town, you're down at the coffee shop on Sunday, you're getting your, you know, bear claw and your latte and in comes your neighbor and you say, hey, so I noticed you put up an armored structure down there. How did you do that? And he says, well, you know what you have to do is you've got to get a geologist. Here's what the process is. How much did it cost you? Well, it's the, in other words, the once you open the door to increased armoring, the level of, as you say, learning and capacity to act increases as the knowledge of the permitting system and the complexity and the expertise. And the expertise. expertise. You you develop an industry. I mean, we see this in Florida now where this emergency permitting loophole, I mean, it might as well just be an industry. Right. Where there is contractors that are booked year round doing emer- doing the construction on an emergency right. basis. Know how to do There it. are lawyers that pull the permits. That is their job. That is what they do. They're very good at it. Like you develop this industrial expertise and infrastructure. Yeah. That also, I think, probably contributes to the spillover. Is that is that fair, Steve? I mean, that it, and what surprised me about the analysis you did and, and folks, this is a very rigorous analysis. If you if you and I we will post the paper. Uh, with the show, but it's worth looking at. Uh, they pulled, they looked at every single parcel in Lincoln and Tillamook counties. I think it was 9,000 something parcels uh, really examined the, as you said, the economic value, the the structure, its location, the level of risk. I mean, this is a, this is a thorough, thorough analysis. 
that le- led to this surprising, I thought, surprisingly significant uh, conclusion that this learning factor uh, really has a, a is a big driver on how much armoring is going to occur on the Oregon coast. Uh, can, what was the quantified impact of, of this learning factor? So for the, the impact, we I won't get into interpreting the coefficients of the model uh, because that these are kind of low frequency or low probability choices in any given year. So the, the effects appear quite small. But what we did to bring it into a policy context was we took our econometric model coefficients and did land use simulations out 40 years into the future. So essentially what this does is it takes the determinants estimated in our model and the influences they have on the likelihood of armoring in any given period and uses them as a basis for behavior going into the future. So in our, in our simulations, we would change, um, what we would update in each decision period would be the count of your direct neighbors or your neighbor or the count of the properties in your neighborhood that would armor and some measures of shoreline change in order to kind of simulate how we would go from our current allocation of armoring across the coastline out into the future. And what we did find on our first analysis was let's do this without the spillover effects, the pure effects or the externality effects and see how many parcels we project would be armored in the next 40 years, just with El Nino events and erosion changes. And what we, we found was kind of quite striking and, and demonstrated the, the significance of these kind of spillover or peer effects. We found that anywhere between a, a model without these, including these spatial interactions between neighbors, would underestimate future armoring anywhere between 37 and 97%. So we could be missing half of what would be armored in 40 years if we're not accounting for how neighbors interact and how those spillover effects would lead to generate to this kind of cascading effect of armoring in places where there exists armoring currently. Wow. Uh, that you would, if you do not account for the learned effect or the adjacency, the actions of your adjacent neighbors, you're going to underestimate the future armoring on the Oregon shoreline by as much as 50% or higher. Uh, I, the reason I think this is interesting, and, and for the listeners out there, uh, Steve also served in the 19, uh, 2019 uh, commission uh, established by the Division of, uh, let's see, it's the Department of Land Conservation and Development, a state agency. It was called the Goal 18 Pre-1977 Development Focus Group. This was a, an effort by the state to examine Goal 18 how the 1977 grandfather provision operated. So you've been involved in the state level policy discussions about goal 18. And I'm wondering, Steve, are you going to be presenting this paper at a legislative hearing in the Oregon legislature or before the Department of Land Conservation and Development to inform them that as they consider changes to goal 18 and the 77 grandfather provision, that they might want to think about this particular impact and the significance of how this would drive armoring on the Oregon coast. Is that is that where this goes? Yes, I'd love to make this presentation to the legislature in Salem. I've, I have presented this work to DLCD on a number of occasions, and the Coastal Shore Specialist at DLCD has been an integral part of our uh, thinking and developing the kind of policy scenarios and the analysis. So this, as I mentioned earlier, this came out of a NOAA-funded grant uh, that required 
significant stakeholder engagement. Uh, so this process was done in conjunction with stakeholders and agencies that have a stake in Goal 18 in Oregon's coast. So I have presented this, this work. It was the reason I was invited to participate on that focus group, which was a series of six public meetings with town managers, county planners, lawyers, uh, Surfrider Foundation, and, and other interested parties to try to see how we can move forward in the state and see what needs to change because of the conflict that sea level rise and increasing erosion is creating and will create with the two groups of coastal homeowners that we have, the, the ones that can armor and the ones that cannot. You know, the other thing that comes to mind when I think of the spillover effect is the potential positives. Like if you were able to, for example, introduce a green project or an alternative, could you not create a similar uh, spillover education uh, wave, for lack of a better word, um, you know, in a, in a for, forgive me, a more positive direction. I mean, armoring ultimately on the shoreline is a bad thing. I think we agree there are certain instances where it needs to be done. Um, but you, for for us to just, you know, let let our throw our caution to the wind and armor everywhere would be a, a disaster. That's why these laws restricting it exist. I mean, have, has there been any, have you given any thought to that and what that might look like? That's a great question, and I'm, I'm currently actually working on a, a survey about beach management in Oregon that hopefully will be sent out in summer of, of this year to understand public preferences for kind of these different management strategies that we have at our disposal. Uh, in terms of green infrastructure along the coastline, I have been working on some interdisciplinary projects that look at the effect of dune grasses, I mean, and that, and dune grading and another dune restoration that could occur along the Oregon coast. I think it's important to note, I mean, for those listening that haven't been to the Oregon coast, it's, it's, there's a developed shoreline and there's undeveloped shoreline. There's a ton of state parks. So there's a suite of management strategies that need to be considered. And there's different types of shoreline that we're talking about here. Uh, our focus with this paper was on obviously the developed shoreline. Um, and there are places where there's too much sand and, and, and homeowners are asking for permits to grade the dunes so they can restore their ocean views. And, and in turn, they have to plant dune grasses uh, to try to stabilize the sands. And, you know, I won't get into it too far, but that creates its own set of issues because the grasses they plant are non-native and invasive and have negative impacts on a number of native species that are on the endangered species list. So the, the complexity of, of trying to manage Oregon's coastline both undeveloped and undeveloped shorelines is kind of fascinating and where a lot of my current research is, is steeped. To give our audience a, a sense of magnitude, I think we've mentioned this, but uh, under currently there are about 9,050 oceanfront parcels in the state of Oregon eligible for armoring. Uh, only 22% of those eligible parcels have exercised the option to armor. So there's more than 3,500 parcels eligible for armoring, just to give folks a sense of magnitude. Uh, Steve, when you're looking ahead down the line, looking at the analysis that you have conducted, not only in the paper that came out uh, this month, but the previous work uh, that you've done, we'll post all of the links to all of these uh, papers uh, with the show. Um, what do you see down the road? Are you predicting or projecting, or uh, maybe this is your personal assessment having been 
uh, involved in the issue. Uh, are you expecting the Oregon coast to, to really see more armoring over the next 10 years? Or do you feel like, as Tyler suggested, there may be some green alternatives or other solutions that may begin to emerge? What, what do you think the state is going in terms of shoreline armoring? Right now, I think we're kind of in a holding pattern with our current restrictions under Goal 18. You know, our paper does do a, a few policy scenarios uh, in the simulation section. And I think what's most interesting that we found to me was, you know, we were expecting if we added sea level rise to the model, we'd see this huge jump in armoring uh, over the next 40 years. And what we find is that it was only about a 5 5% increase in armoring due to sea level rise. But when we played with policy scenarios like removing the goal 18 restriction, we, we saw a almost 70% jump in the number of armored parcels over the next 40 years. And that suggests, that, that suggests to me that policy is, is the driver. Policy really matters, and policy is what's going to shape our shoreline moving forward. Wow. I, don't know that, I don't know that the state is currently ready to talk about large-scale changes to this policy. I, I don't think the will is there for the state to simply remove the armoring policy. There's, there's a lot of stakeholder engagement and, and public sentiment around the beach bill and the permanent recreation easement access. So it gets to that fundamental tension of public access versus private protection. Uh, I don't see that going away, but I also don't see the state moving in a direction to make it more restrictive. I, I'm curious if you wouldn't mind, take, can you take us inside the room of the of the Goal 18 pre-1977 development focus group meetings? I think you said you attended six of these. It included local government officials, landowners, lawyers, the whole general spectrum of stakeholders on issues of this type. What did those rooms sound like? What was the, what, what, what's your takeaway of the conversation? Uh, where, it, where, where did those meetings, uh, what, what, what was illuminated to you in those meetings? I think in those meetings, each one was focused on a different specific issue related to Goal 18 and focused on either a state agency, an academic, or a lawyer making a case for one aspect of the, the strengths and weaknesses of the current uh, land use planning goal. Uh, most of the public there was landowners who did not have the option to armor, and they were allowed a public comment period where they would lay out reasons why, uh, in their particular case, they, fe they felt that they should get an exception to Goal 18. Uh, I've heard lots of anecdotal stories from colleagues around the country about armoring and how easy it is to get an exception, and, and so that's simply not the case in Oregon. There is an exception process for Goal 18, and that was discussed extensively. However, it's costly and it takes a lot of time and it's actually never been attempted. So I think people, landowners and lawyers are hesitant to be the first to try to go through the exception okay. process. Let me, st let me stop there and see if I followed that. I think what you just said was if you're in the post-1977 group and you're prohibited from having armoring, there is a process where you can seek an exception, but it has never been attempted. That is stunning. Is that, is that, that, is that, am I following you right? Yes, that's my understanding. Wow. Uh, it would require municipality and counties to support it, and it would have to go through its uh, extensive review process. And oh, because, because it hasn't been attempted, no one actually knows how much that would cost or what that actually looks like or what the result would be. 
So I think there's some hesitancy to be the, the first to test the exception system. I mean, that's amazing that it hasn't been done yet. Uh, and that's a whole Pandora's box of lawsuits and, and litigation that I'm sure would, uh, well, yeah, don't I, you think? I, yeah, I think it, it, clearly the hurdle must be high, but I have to say that this law has been in place for, let's see, 23 years plus 20, more than almost 45 years. It's got to be a testament to other coastal managers in cities and counties and states around the country is can you hold the line on a prohibition on armoring? As you said, in Florida, uh, emergency armoring permits are a little bit like candy. You could, there's a whole industry of lawyers and contractors and permit people who know how to do that. We've 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 seen sheet pile being pounded into the beaches of of, uh, of Charlotte County on Minnesota Key as the uh, uh erosion rate on the shoreline increased. I mean, th this is can be done and it can be done quite if, if easily you can, if you can pay for it. Yeah. And have a, of an, you know, pay someone to get you the permit and then build the thing. You can do it. You can do it. it. What's but, interesting, though, is we also sp I'm sorry to interrupt no, here, no, no, Peter, no. but, you know, we also spoke on this issue in Hawaii uh, with uh, I'm blanking on his name, Skip something or other. We'll look it up. Ugh, I'll look and um, a professor and he was having this i mean this is the in hawaii so like what's what's incredible and of course i'm from california considered to be a pretty green state you know mm -hmm. uh armoring i mean obviously uh, a lot of it's older but ventura county where i'm from is like 90 something percent armored mm -hmm. very armored yeah uh and so the writing i think is on the wall like it is this is a difficult line to hold very and I, this rush that you're talking that that this paper uh this is why i love this applied economics yeah. perspective it's so useful yeah it is it helps explain why we are doing this behavior exists because when these property owners are behaving as sovereign agents or the self-help model, right. there is a hazard in their decision-making. They are externalizing the impacts of, of this that are environmental, that are d directly onto their neighbors, whatever they are, yeah. or, or onto the public's you know, access, the 100%. public's right to access. They're externalizing all of these for their own benefit, which from their perspective seems like a good deal. Yeah, no, That's, I, I this think it's important to recognize it, 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 you've really this is why I love this paper, Steve, and the work that you guys are doing and this self-help model. And I think Tyler is saying something I think is absolutely essential to this is the, the focus of consideration when you develop a self-help approach, individual parcel owners being the actor is that person has no obligation to consider the downdrift impacts of adjacent landowners or shoreline sediment transport rates and all sorts of considerations that in a public shoreline management program you would take into account water quality effects sand sources dune plant all, let's put all, it this way it would require you, you a very large parcel yeah, for, <laughs> for anybody to for give you a to, damn about anybody else and i mean that's the weakness of the oregon model and and it's this weird paradox that in Oregon, they have actually been able to hold the line and never have given an armored exception to the post-1977 prohibition. I am stunned by that's, that, that's first cool. of all. Uh, but I should, I should correct that. Is that. There has been a community level exception for certain communities. Okay. But, 
but individual exceptions have, have, have not occurred to my knowledge. Okay, thanks. I'm sorry. We're, 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 Tyler and Mark, we're getting excited we're, we're, over we're, here. We are. I mean, we're really interested in the in the analysis you're doing and and the implications. And why don't why don't we just let you tell us what the implications of what your analysis is beginning to show and what your impression is about what you're learning. I do want to comment on a little bit on what you guys just said. Please do. Because this is what I teach my undergraduates. If I, When I teach my undergrad environmental economics course, I tell them if there's one thing that you can take away from this course, that environmental problems stem from the fact that individual, what's what's best for an individual don't always align with what's best for society. And you guys explained it very well in this particular case of why, why that's a problem, why having individual agents making these adaptation decisions uh, could create problems for uh, others and society. But as as we move forward with looking at land use planning along the coast in Oregon, you know, armoring is going to continue. There is, I think the problem hasn't reared its head in the last 40 years because of the sediment supply and the size of beaches along the Oregon coasts. Typically, we're quite big, but the erosion has kicked up due to some severe El Nino events in like 96 and 97 sea level rise and erosion have created communities where they were never worried about this and now all of a sudden they don't know what to do. So I think the physical forcings are, are coming to a head where the state is going to have to think about how to how to adjust, whether it's altering the armoring policy, thinking about other ways. Is, is beach nourishment even feasible? Is it just too costly or can we do something to make it happen here? Hey, hey, Steve. Can, I, I think we'd be, uh, what about buyouts? I mean, has there been any discussion of, of buying vulnerable properties? That's a great question. And I was the one that brought it up in the Goal 18 focus group. And I, I got a lot of stern looks around the room. Um, I think that's the elephant in the room. I think that's, in a lot of cases around the country, that's the way we're going to have to start thinking about it. Uh, I know in New Jersey, they have the Blue Acres program, which is a voluntary buyout program. There's there's programs in Louisiana, New York, and Washington State. They all focus on voluntary buyouts. And to my knowledge, they mostly focus on inland properties that are vulnerable to flooding. Uh, there's a reason for this, is that getting coastal property owners to voluntarily leave is, is challenging because of the amenities that draw them there in the first place. Uh, there are other reasons in Oregon why it's important. I mean, we have this threat of a Cascadia subduction zone earthquake and tsunami. So there's dual reasons to think about why we should be thinking about relocation as a viable strategy. Um, to my knowledge, there's no t talk at the state level about a managed retreat program currently. It'll be my job and others to try to get that into the discussion. Um, one fantastic idea I heard from a DLCD employee during the focus group was similar to re reverse mortgage. If the state could develop a fund to buy out these properties, but then rent them back to the owners so that they could stay and enjoy the property and then develop some thresholds at, at a point where, okay, the, the property is now at serious risk. We're going to remove it and, um, and then you have to leave. So kind of a life estate idea. Uh, yeah, which I, is, thought that, I thought that was interesting and at least worth really considering. Interesting. Well, you know, I think uh, I'm so glad that 
that that discussion is beginning to emerge in Oregon uh, on managed retreat uh, buyouts. You know, we know we all know that the takings clause and regulations that are uh, that prohibit the economic use of property are are uh, um, difficult to exercise because of the economic fallout. You've got to pay. And I'm, I'm just I've just jumped to the quick. And my own personal opinion is the public needs to simply write the checks and begin to change the development patterns along the coast. Uh, I love this reversed uh, mortgage notion. Would love to see more analysis of that because it all comes down to how can that be executed. Uh, this is a topic that that Tyler and I have talked with Rob Young, Dr. Rob Young at the Center for Developed Shorelines at uh, Western Carolina University. We're a big fan of his thinking. Uh, he believes in this idea of managed retreat. Uh, however, uh, in my opinion, the mechanisms, the financial and political and legal structures necessary to, to execute that policy have simply not been developed effectively in America yet, in my opinion. Uh, and this is the kind of uh, thinking I think that's so important. How can we actually do it? How much does it cost? How do we handle the property? How do we handle the litigation? Uh, uh, the sooner we get smarter about looking at alternatives like managed retreats or buyouts, uh, the better off we're going to be. Because in the absence of those choices, you're left with dumping riprap on these shorelines or pounding sheet pile onto the beach, uh, whatever the armoring solution is. In certain places, maybe you can do dune enhancement. Uh, but in a place like Oregon, the toolbox looks pretty thin to me in terms of the state's capacity to uh, you know, help landowners who are facing a crisis of property loss and the public's right. It's like a pretty thin toolbox, to be honest. Uh, in terms of in terms of managed retreat, I think I don't think I could have said it better myself. That there just simply hasn't been enough discussion about it for the mechanisms to be available. I mean, if we think about the takings clause, we're, we're left in a world where these things have to be voluntary. So the incentive structures have to be set up in a way that. And the risk has to be high enough for, for these landowners to be like, okay, this is a viable option. But part of my takeaway from the Goal 18 focus group was that the lack of another option, the fact that they're just, they can't armor, the people that were there just can't armor and they're looking for another option uh, means that we really need to seriously start considering it. Um, but I think critically is what do you do with that land? Who manages it? Uh, and how can you incentivize people to voluntarily participate in this program? And are there other policy changes or insurance mechanisms that can be in place to um, also create that incentive? I mean, we could open a, a Pandora's box of coastal policy and insurance issues that lead people to make bad decisions, but we, we have to start thinking about that in order to incentivize this type of behavior in vulnerable coastal areas. In my, uh, see, this is the kind of spillover effect I'd like to see is someone to pioneer that and be like, oh yeah, you know, I sold my development rights or they were bought out and now I have a, a, a deck. There's no habitable structure and I have no wall and eventually it will all go away. And then I see in that keyhole, you know, you're talking about, Maybe a, that. you're talking about that sawtooth pattern <laughs> and you know, if enough time goes by, you're Maybe. not going to be attacked from the beach side. It'll just erode all the way through and you'll get attacked. You'll get flanked uh, and that'll get the others to, to eventually retreat. But um, look, I, Steve, we've, we've been talking for about an hour and 
uh, obviously the focus of your work, we, we've kind of covered the history from that, that one case of the one house. Rockaway. Rock in Rockaway five years ago. Um, but I'm curious to know if if your applied economics frame, if you're looking at other coastal issues, other uh, coastal marine issues other than uh, this one. Yes, um, a lot of different things. Um, I, I've looked at beach nourishment's effect on housing prices in New Jersey. A, a more recent paper that I thought was quite interesting was in the same journal as the one uh, we were discussing today that was published back in November, so not too long ago. Looked at how... Uh, landowners responded to the threat of regulations related to sea level rise in North Carolina and showed how even the threat of policy changes behavior. We saw that uh, housing starts increased by nearly 40% in coastal North Carolina just under the threat of new regulations based on a one meter of sea level rise projection, mm -hmm. suggesting that even well-intentioned policy if can, can lead to kind of perverse incentives. Uh, back here in Oregon, I have a number of projects trying to think about how to optimize land use on developed and undeveloped shorelines uh, in the frame of trying to optimize the provision of ecosystem services, including protection, recreation, aesthetics, and even carbon storage in, in dunes and beaches. So most of my research is, is focused on, on coastal development issues and climate change adaptation, and it's, it's taking me all around the country. Uh, and it's striking to me how similar yet different these issues are on a state-by-state -state basis. It, it's such important work, Stephen. I couldn't agree with you more that uh, uh, it is, there is a commonality to the discussion. Certainly the tensions are, uh, are common state to state, but the circumstances, the policy context, the political context varies. Uh, it's such important work. I'll just say, uh, Tyler, like we talk about this all the time, the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association's conference is really fantastic. There's, it's heavy with engineering technical analysis of shoreline management, which is so important. But this discussion on managed retreat, applied economics, how these human behavior, human behavior, the sociology of the coast is such an important topic. I would love to see uh, Steve, you and your fellow uh, researchers uh, involved. I don't know if you have been to ASBPA's national conference, if we're going to have national conferences anymore. But this topic is so important, and we really appreciate you walking us through it today. That, that conference is definitely on my radar for the future. Um, but thank you, Peter and Tyler, for having me today. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Dr. Steve Dundas uh, from the Department of Applied Economics at Oregon State University. Uh, the author with Dr. Jason Beasley of a paper in the Journal for Environmental Economics and Management. Uh, Google it up. It's in the January edition. It's called Hold the Line, Modeling Private Coastal Adaptation Through Shoreline Armoring Decisions. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for uh, educating our audience on the work that you're doing and the important policy implications of applied economics. We really appreciate it and enjoyed it very much. Thank you so much. It was fun. And I'll just mention that article is open access, so it does not sit behind a firewall that anyone can, can access it and read it. Yep. Thank God for that, because I'll tell you, it gets expensive when you had to get into these papers. Thanks so much, Stephen. Have a great week, and uh, we look forward to hearing more about your work in the future. Let us know what you're doing. We'd love to talk to you again.